the things that Stephen said as he presented a case against their accusations that were being made while he was in the city of Jerusalem, in the temple, proclaiming the gospel message, like Peter, like the other apostles, the Sanhedrin did not like what he was saying. They brought him before the Sanhedrin. And not only did they bring him before the Sanhedrin, but they got together some men who were willing to testify falsely against him. And so the accusations were made, and the high priest had asked Stephen if these things were so. You remember that's how chapter 7 of the book of Acts had started. And Stephen began to give them a history lesson. Oh, it was much more than a history lesson, though. It was very, very timely, and it was by the Spirit of God that he spoke of the things that he spoke of, because they were not just a defense of himself. In fact, they weren't really a defense of himself. They were a defense of what God has been doing, and still is doing, by the way, today in this modern age, in the lives and hearts of the men of Israel, of the people of Israel, His people, His chosen ones, the ones that He has declared, I love you, you are my people. There came a time in their history, because of the things that they had done, and because of their rejection of what God had done, that God had said through the prophet Hosea, you are not my people. I'm going to give a little bit more of a history lesson today than anything else, but I want you to understand that that is, in my opinion, so very, very needful for all of us to know what does God intend to do with this people that he once called not my people. There is coming a day, and again, it's written in the Old Testament book of Hosea, I will call those who were not my people, you are my people. There's coming a day when they will be his people, and he will be their God. So I want to focus today, and perhaps in another session later, after this day, we might continue talking about the nation of Israel and what God's plan is for this people. We looked at that briefly last time. I'd like to continue that particular thought that God is not through with his people today and perhaps again in one or more sessions that we get together, the Lord willing. I'd like to begin first by reading another psalm that was very, very dear to my heart. When I first read it, I realized this is the heart of a man who loves the Lord but sees danger all around. Psalm 120. And then after we read Psalm 120, we'll move on to the text that I've chosen for today's study. But Psalm 120 begins by saying, In my distress, I cried to the Lord, and He heard me. You realize God hears the cries of His people? That's so very obvious throughout all of the Word of God. I cried unto the Lord, and He heard my voice. Deliver my soul, O Lord, from lying lips and from a deceitful tongue. I want you to note also that what's going on in, 
Israel in Gaza in all of the various forms of hatred around the world, lies are being propagated. And we need to know what is truth. That's why I'm going to be doing what I'm going to be doing in these hours ahead from this point on until the Lord leads me elsewhere. But I want us to be very, very much aware of the fact that lies are being propagated by the enemy of God. He is a father of lies. Make no mistake about it. And lies from the Gaza Strip, lies from our own governmental officials in Congress, lies from Europe, lies from Russia, lies from many, many world leaders and places around the world. One intent is to bring the nation of Israel down to eliminate them altogether. There is a move in the world today of hatred. And this psalm speaks of that. Listen again. Not only are they lying lips with deceitful tongues, he says in verse 3, What shall I be, what shall be given to you, or what shall be done to you, you false tongue? How am I going to deal with all of this falsehood? How am I going to deal with all of this deception? That's what the psalmist is asking. He says in verse 4, Sharp arrows of the warrior with coals of the broom tree. The answer is, defend yourself. The answer is, make sure that you are willing to take a stand. But he says in verse 5, Woe is me that I dwell in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. That's the nation of Israel today. I am for peace. That is true of them. They want peace. They want to live in harmony with those around them. They are willing to sacrifice for the sake of peace. They always have been. That's why they gave Gaza to the Palestinians in the first place. That's why they have done so much in every single agreement that has been made by the Israelis to try to establish a peace between them and the people around them. And these peace treaties have been propagated for that purpose. But as soon as they're agreed upon, the enemy of Israel does not take that agreement seriously. My soul has dwelt too long with one who hates peace. I am for peace. But when I speak, they are for war. So that's the predicament that the nation of Israel is facing. How is it that they have come to this place? How is it that they are such a hated people? You've got to go back through their history. And I hope that you all know these things, but I want to kind of briefly remind us all of all the things, well, perhaps not all of them, because that would take too long to review all of the things, but so many of the things that have happened to this people that God has called His people. So we're going to turn today to the book of Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel is a remarkable prophecy. The last several chapters are all about the last days. Beginning with verse thir- uh, chapter 35, it speaks of modern-day Israel. It speaks of a time that, according to Ezekiel, would be far, far off from his day. He wrote this about 2,500 or so years ago, 2,600 years ago. And, and in this writing of this great prophetic book, Ezekiel focuses on not only the time in which he was living, he was living at around the time and in captivity in Babylon 
during the Babylonian captivity, which began in around 605 B.C., the city of Jerusalem was completely destroyed and the temple was taken down by the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Jeremiah was a contemporary of his, although Jeremiah was much older than Ezekiel. Ezekiel was among those who had been taken into exile in the earlier years, sometime after 605 B.C., and he's now in Babylon and he's proclaiming the word of God from his place of captivity about the same time that Jeremiah is speaking of the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. So that's the time frame in which he was prophesying. And in chapter 36, already they have been in captivity, and Ezekiel starts to talk about, by the Spirit of God, the restoration of the land of Israel. The land would become desolate. Now, in order for you to understand the totality of what he has been speaking about in that passage, you only need to go back to the 1800s. Around the time of Mark Twain, when he was alive, in 1881 or so, he visited Israel. And he looked at that terrible desolation that existed in his day. And he wrote about it. And he commented about the fact that there's no way that anybody could exist in such a desolate place as this. He had never seen such desolation in all of the places that he had ever been. He wrote about that thing. He's referring to that which once was a great nation of Israel. In his eyes, it was no longer a great nation. It was just simply a wilderness, desolate place. The inhabitants in his day were nomads. There were no real major cities in the entire region. It was completely desolate. The northern territory that we know of as a Galilean region was stripped completely of its trees. Marshes in that desert area, breeding grounds for disease-carrying insects. Malaria was one of the most terrible things that was ongoing during that period of time, very common. Ezekiel spoke of that kind of desolation in chapter 36. We're not going to go there today, but I just want you to know that, that he was talking about those various things that we know historically were indeed completely fulfilled in not that many years ago. We also know from their own history that since the time of Solomon, the nation of Israel was actually split into two separate nations. You recall the divided kingdom. Judah and Benjamin in the southern kingdom, known as Judah. In the northern kingdom, the other ten tribes that inherited land were occupying that northern section, and they were known as Israel. They suffered great losses against the Assyrians and were completely removed from the land with the exception of only a few farmers and very few poor people that were remaining in the land in 722 B.C. That was 150 plus years before Judah was captured by the Babylonians. But the combination of those two events completely eradicated any possibility of the nation of Israel coming back into the land in his day. But yet he spoke of it. Not only was the land to become fruitful once again, 
which was a remarkable prophecy given the condition of the land again in the 1800s. And by the way, it was indeed fulfilled. That prophecy that the land would become fruitful, we know it's true. When the people of Israel came back into the land in 1948, that desolation still continued to exist. But they changed everything. They took care of the marshlands by planting trees. They reforested the entire nation. They took care of all the various things that had been destroyed. They were agriculturally advanced, enabled by the Lord, the Holy Spirit leading them, to become great horticulturists. So so much so that they have become the largest distribution country in the world of oranges. They're among the largest distributors of flowers. They have advanced their technology to such an extent that the world is looking to them to find out how are they doing these things. It's in fulfillment of what God's Word said in chapter 36 of Ezekiel. But also in chapter 36 of Ezekiel, he speaks of who it is that is going to accomplish this refurbishing of the land. And we find that in several different places. I'd like to read just a couple of verses out of chapter 36 of the book of Ezekiel, beginning with verse 24. He's speaking to the nation of Israel. And when Ezekiel is speaking to the nation of Israel, he's talking to the whole house of Israel. Not just the northern ten tribes, not just Judah, but all twelve tribes collectively together. He speaks these words. In verse 24 of chapter 36, he says, For I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all countries, and bring you into your own land. Listen again to what God is saying through the prophet Ezekiel. God is saying, I will bring you back into your land. It is a land that God gave to the nation of Israel. It does not belong to any other. It's His own land. He has called it His land and He has given it to them to care for His land. But here He's calling it their land. And they were to be the ones who would occupy it. So it's very clear in this passage that we've just looked at in chapter 36, verse 24, that it is God's intent, this people, that He calls His own people, the nation of Israel, in its entirety, all twelve tribes are to inhabit His land. And He's calling it your land. And then in verse 25, Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Then you shall dwell in the land that I gave to your fathers. You shall be my people and I will be your God. Do you see what God is saying to the nation? He's saying, I'm going to do something of a miracle in your lives. I'm going to take that heart of flesh out of your body and I'm going to replace it with a heart that is longing to be God's. There is a move among the world by the Holy Spirit 
all over, as Sarah has mentioned earlier. God is bringing people to their knees by visiting them through miraculous things that are being done all over the world. People are seeing visions, dreaming dreams. They're experiencing a conversion that has not been seen in our country, in our region, I don't think ever. But I so want that to be the case here too. I want there to be a revival. I want there to be a renewal. I want there to be an awakening of souls. I want this house to be filled. I pray for that. I hope you all have been praying for it too. There is a day in which I believe that is going to take place when God moves in the people's hearts in this land as He has been doing everywhere else in the world. Why not here, Lord? Why are we not? It is because of unbelief. It is because of complacency. It is because of, I don't care, I'm doing really, really well, and I don't need God. That's the attitude of so many today. Oh God, change their attitude. Whatever means you choose to change their attitude, Lord God, do it soon. (laughs) That's my prayer. It's happening in Israel. It's happening in Iran. It's happening in China. It's happening all over the world. I want it to happen here. But what Ezekiel here has been speaking of hasn't yet completely been fulfilled. Yes, they are in the land. That happened in 1948. But he's talking about a remarkable thing here that the moving of the Holy Spirit among his people in such a way as to draw them to faith in Him once again. That is not a reality in Israel. The vast majority of Israelis are agnostic at best. They are not following after the things of God in their society. Tel Aviv is a hot spot for gay people. There are many places in Israel where sin abounds, and they love it, kind of like the United States of America. That's going to change. I will put my spirit within you, he says. When God says, I will, I hope you understand, it'll happen, because God says, I will. I don't know when. I don't know how. But I do know it will. Be done. So that's the reality. Israel is in the land. 1948, they became a nation. David Ben-Gurion leading the way to protect the people of Israel who had come back into the land. About 100,000 or so Israelis in the land in 1948. They were immediately attacked by all of the Arab nations around them. They had no weapons. They had no Money to speak of. Remember, they had just been through a holocaust in Germany and in Russia. In other places in the world, they were persecuted people. And that goes back centuries. It goes back to the Spanish Inquisition. It goes back beyond that. It goes back to the bubonic plague. It goes back beyond that. It goes back to the uh, time of the dispersion of the Jews out of Israel in 70 A.D., They have been a persecuted people for that many years. So many of them have been relentlessly murdered, killed, because they were Jews. 
until 1914, an Englishman wrote a document called the Balfour Declaration. It was at that time that people began to realize the Jews are being persecuted for no good reason. There must be something done. So the Balfour Declaration became a document that was used in later years to bring to pass that which God had intended. And I submit to you that all of that time, between 70 A.D. and 1948, God knew every detail about every one of those souls throughout those years. God was not taken by surprise with any of these things. It was part of the plan. Yes, they were persecuted. Yes, many of them died. But God kept them as a people, uniquely as a people, with one heritage, they lost only the language that they were speaking in 70 A.D. And so in 1914, another event began to take place. There was a Jewish man named Eliezer ben Yehuda. He was a scholar. He knew many, many languages. He was one of the very few Jewish men who knew how to speak the Hebrew of Jesus' day. Now, even in Jesus' day, the vast majority of the Israeli population spoke Aramaic, not Hebrew. But the, the, the teachers in Jerusalem and other places within Israel who were familiar with the Word of God read and spoke Hebrew. But it became a lost language for so, so many years, until 1914, when Eliezer ben Yehuda got together with some friends and they began to put together schools throughout Europe where people could learn the Hebrew language. That was in preparation for 1948. They didn't have a common language, but they were a people who were, all of them, united by one faith in God. They had no nation to live in, no land to call their own. It wasn't until, again, 1948 that that took place. After the World War II, again, Britain leading the way to make it so that they could re-enter the land. And they began to move back into Israel. There are probably around 7 million Jews in Israel today. Total population around 9.5 million. Israel is about the size of New Jersey. It's not a big land. They're not a large people group compared to others. And so when you look at the things that took place just two weeks ago, on October 7th, the number of people who were perished in that raid of Hamas is equivalent from our country's perspective of about 100,000 people dying in a terrorist attack. There were about 1,300 people who died, a couple hundred still hostages. Look at the percentages and see how devastating this invasion was to the people of Israel. 
It shouldn't have happened, but it has been happening, and it will continue to happen. I believe this is just a prelude of other things that will take place before the people of Israel have their eyes opened to the truth. It's part of God's plan. But here in Ezekiel chapter 37, I want us to take a look at God's perspective in all of this. I want us to take a look at what is happening and has been happening over so many years is all part of the plan that God lays out for us so clearly in Ezekiel chapter 37. He begins in verse 1 of chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel with these words, The hand of the Lord came upon me, Ezekiel speaking, and brought me out in the Spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of the valley and it was full of bones. Then he caused me to pass by them all around and behold, there were very many in the open valley and indeed they were very dry. And he, God, said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? So I answered, O Lord, you know. Good answer, Ezekiel. I don't have any idea how it could possibly be, but I know you do. Take note of the fact that these are bones in a very large valley and there are a very large number of them and they have obviously been there in that valley in this vision that Ezekiel has for many, many days. And they were very, very dry, scorched by the hot sun. And so in verse 4 it says, Again, God said to me, Prophesy to these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, Isaiah was asked by God to do a lot of very, very strange things. At one time, he had to lay on his left side for 390 days as an example to his people. And after that was over, the Lord told him to lay on his right side for another 45 days. The Lord gave him very, very many example type of prophetic statements that he had to live out as a living example to the people around him. He was a very, very humble man, used by God in a very, very profound way. Now he's telling this man, preach to these dry bones. Now, I've had an occasion every once in a while where I felt like I've been preaching to dry bones. I don't really know whether that's true or not. I don't think it is. But can you imagine the reality of that? Tell these dry bones what I want them to hear. But they're just dry bones, Lord. What do you mean? How is that going to happen? Well, remember who it is that's telling him to do this. God said it. And this man of God, the one that the Lord lovingly called Son of Man, he's going to obey. You know, I know that it's important. I hope it is to you. It is important to me. When I know God has spoken, when I know God has chosen to say something, that He wants for me to do. I want to be obedient to that which He has called me to do. I want to be like this man, Ezekiel. It doesn't make any sense, Lord, but because You said it, I'm going to do it. That's faith. That's what we ought, ought to be willing to do as well, by faith, in such as this way that He has done. Speak to these bones. Say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. And then he speaks in verse 5. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Surely I will cause breath to enter into you, and you shall live. 
Now, you may not know, if you didn't read the rest of this passage, what it is that he's talking about. But he's talking about a nation of men and women known as Israel. He says in verse 6, I will put sinews on you and bring flesh upon you, cover you with skin, put breath in you, and you shall live. Then you shall say, rather, then you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied, there was a noise, and suddenly a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to bone. An old Hebrew song came from this. The knee bone connected to the thigh bone. It's a famous Hebrew, uh, not Hebrew, but Negro tune. But they were given life, bone to bone, specific bones, two specific bones. And then ligaments, tendons, muscles, blood vessels, nerves, and then skin covering them. And they came to life. Not only. In verse 8 it says, Indeed, as I looked, the sinews and the flesh came upon them, and the skin covered them over, but there was no breath in them. Also he said to me, Prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, Thus says the Lord God, Come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. God's recognition of the nation of Israel is that they were dead. And his recognition of those who are in the world today is that they are dead in sin. Same problem, same issue. It is death that separates us from him. And now he's saying to Ezekiel, speak unto the winds so that the wind may bring life into their bodies. The word for breath in the Hebrew is ruach. Ruach is a word that can be used and is used in several different ways. It can be translated wind or breath, as it is here, or spirit. The Spirit of the Lord breathed on you and gave you life. And that's exactly what God is saying to Ezekiel on behalf of this people. He breathed life into them. And so in verse 10 he says, So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath came into them, and they lived, and stood upon their feet, an exceeding great army. There's a purpose in him bringing life into their bodies. To be an army for God. We have been blessed be given the privilege of being soldiers for Christ, an army in this world to represent Him, an army that is willing to go to the battle. He gives us the armor to put upon ourselves that we may be able to do such things as He requires of us. You put on the whole armor of God, Paul tells us. And he tells us in order to stand. What is it? that we're doing, we're standing against the wiles of the enemy. The Bible tells us in the book of James, resist the enemy by submitting yourselves to God, humbling yourselves before Him. And when we humble ourselves and submit ourselves to God, Satan will flee. 
Resist the devil and he will flee. You do that by putting upon yourselves the whole armor of God. That's why I say we are an army. We're clothed for battle. But I'm also mindful of the fact that the battle is not for us to win. The battle has already been won. He has won the victory through Christ Jesus. We're only participants in the glory that comes to Him through our willingness to take a stand on behalf of our King. I'm so glad that God has made it so very, very simple that even a child should be able to understand these things. When he says we are more than conquerors, we can say that about ourselves only because he has already won the battle. If you are conquerors, you are the ones who do the work of conquering. But if you're more than a conqueror, the battle has already been won. You're just there to receive the benefit of it. More than conquerors. That's who we are. These people are an army. They're standing now ready to go into battle. But the battle is not theirs. It never was. All the way through their history, the Lord told them very specifically, I will go before you. I will lead you. I will get the victory for you. Always was the case. And it always will be. But they're ready. They're an army. Now he says in verse 12, Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come up from your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. His land. Again, as he said in chapter 36, he's repeating here in chapter 37, God says, I will. And he says, I will bring you, the people of Israel, into the land of Israel. It's his land. It's not anyone else's. Iran will not succeed in defeating Israel. Hamas will not succeed in defeating Israel. Hezbollah will not beat Israel, nor will Russia, nor will Turkey, Libya or Sudan, Egypt or Jordan. None of them will succeed because God's given it to them. It's plain as plain can be. They're in the land now. God brought them into the land. It should be so very, very obvious if you look back through their histories just to see the fact that Not only are they in the land, they have now a common language. They speak the Hebrew language as their national language. They have a heritage. They have a covenant with their God. They are His people. He's restored them. He's brought them back. They're being prepared for that which He spoke of in chapter 36 that we have just read recently, that there is a move of the Spirit of God that will take place in the last days, whereby He will put His own Spirit within them and cause them to walk in His statutes. Now, we know that to have happened on the day of Pentecost for the church. But as we looked at last week, the Jews have a blinding cover over their face. They cannot see. They will not see because they choose not to see. That will change. That will change. It has not happened yet. But yet, if we continue to read, and we will, this book of Ezekiel, 
chapter 37 speaks of something yet to be fulfilled. He says in verse 14, I will put my spirit in you. Again, the same thing that he said in chapter 36, verse 27. Here he says in chapter 37, verse 14, I will put my spirit in you and you shall live and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have spoken it and performed it, says the Lord. They don't know that yet. They don't understand that yet. There's more that needs to be done in that nation of Israel before they will come to that conclusion. Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39 speak of a war that has not yet taken place. And it is during that invasion that their eyes will be opened. And then, I believe, shortly after that invasion, there will be a man who will come on the scene who will let them think that he's got an answer, a solution for peace. And they'll grab at it. And they'll believe him. And it will begin a covenant that he will establish with the people of Israel that will last for a period of seven years, but it's known by all of us as the time of Jacob's trouble, the tribulation period. And it's not until after that seven-year period that the Lord intervenes on behalf of His people that it's then that Zechariah's prophecy in chapter 14 will be fulfilled when Jesus sets His feet upon Mount Zion. And it is then that they will look upon Him whom they have pierced and they will realize for the first time that He, Jesus, is their God. And they will then, that remnant of Jews who are present in that day, will become once again the people of God as Ezekiel unfolds for us in these subsequent verses that we have before us. Verse 15 says again, The word of the Lord came to me saying, As for you, son of man, take a stick for yourself and write on it. For Judah and for the children of Israel, his companions. Then take another stick and write on it. For Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for all the house of Israel, his commandments. Now remember, we talked about the fact that they were a divided kingdom. Israel in the north. Ephraim was the tribe that was the leader of that northern ten tribes. And oftentimes in the Old Testament, that divided kingdom was referred to as Judah in the south and either Israel in the north or Ephraim in the north, the northern ten tribes. They were dispersed in 722 B.C. throughout all of the world, then known world by the Assyrian armies. Judah was taken out of the land in 586 B.C. and they did return into the land 70 years after the initial dispersion. However, only 50,000 of those Jews came back to the land of Judah. And primarily only Jews, although there were among them some of the northern tribes as well. The ten tribes of Israel, I've got news for you if you think otherwise, but they are not lost. God knows exactly who they are, where they are, and he is not going to be taken by surprise. Oh no, I can't find the 144,000 because I can't find the 12,000 of Asher. I've only got 9,000. of the... No, that's not so. Read the book of Revelation. It tells us that there are going to be 144,000 Jews who will be sealed during that seven-year period of tribulation. And 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes that are listed. And there is no mistake, as far as God is concerned, He knows where they are. He has no confusion with regard to the northern ten tribes. And then not the church. So many wrong teachings are propagated in the world today, unfortunately by a lot of American churches. God help us to preach God's word literally 
clearly, matter-of-factly, and stand on it unwaveringly because it's true. Well, let me get back to the text. Verse 16 says, As for you, son of man. Verse 17 said, Join them, those two sticks, together. Join the stick that was chosen for Judah and his companions, and the other stick chosen for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim and his companions. Join them one to another for yourself into one stick, and they will become one in your hand. What is God saying? A united kingdom is going to be in the last days. All of the tribes will be there. United as one nation. That's God's word. He says in verse 18, And when the children of your people speak to you, saying, Will you not show us what you mean by these? I'm glad they asked that question, because he gives the answer. In verse 19, he says, Say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribes of Israel, his companions, and I will join them with it, with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they will be one in my hand. And the sticks on which you write will be in your hand before their eyes. And then say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Surely I will take the children of Israel from among the nations, wherever they have gone, and will gather them from every side and bring them into their own land. And I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king over them all. And they shall no longer be two nations, nor shall they ever be divided into two kingdoms again. Isn't that quite clear? We're not talking about the church in Judah. We're talking about all of the twelve tribes of Israel. The church isn't going to inherit the land of Israel. But there are those who teach that foolish thing. If they would only look at this book and realize that it's to be understood, the people are asking Ezekiel, tell us what this means. Is he going to tell them, oh, well, uh, it, it means spiritually speaking that there is going to come a time when there will be a whole group of Gentiles who will identify as the ten tribes of Israel and they will be united with the tribe of Judah and live happily forever after in the land. That's not our expectation as a church. We have a better place, a better inheritance. Our inheritance has already been determined by the Lord and New Jerusalem is where we will be living and we'll be going in and out of that great city. Read the book of Revelation. Wherever you see land inheritance, it is for the Jew alone. They will receive their land inheritance. Later on in the book of Ezekiel, the land is distributed to each of the twelve tribes. And again, it's not the church, it's the people that we know of as the Hebrew nation. And each one of the twelve tribes will be given land. But it's not just that little tiny strip that's about the size of New Jersey that we're talking here. It's all about from the Mediterranean Sea all the way to the Euphrates River. That whole territory will be the, the territory that will be occupied in the millennial reign time of God on the earth, Jesus Christ. He will sit in Jerusalem as the king of the entire world. Over Israel, he will reign seated on David's throne in the new temple that will be built in Jerusalem. It's 
all spelled out by Ezekiel, confirmed by Daniel, and spoken of very, very clearly in the book of Revelation. You've got to put all of these scriptures together, my friends, in order to understand God's perfect plan for his people and for us as well. We're separate entities. But the people of Israel have a promise that was given to Abraham, and it will be indeed fulfilled. We haven't seen that which we just spoke of yet. And we can read the rest of the chapter. I hope you will, because there's more information still that I don't think we should need necessarily to cover. It's getting late, and I want you all to be able to get home in time to eat your Sunday meals. I don't want you to overcook your roast. But I do want you to understand, we're living in a day where God is fulfilling His plan. Everything we're seeing is either a prelude to events that are yet to happen, or we're in the midst of something marvelous, in spite of the fact that there is death and destruction ahead for His people. There is the promise of God for a remnant to come out of that which is happening in the world around us to bring glory to His holy name in the end. And we're so, so very close. I see nothing that prevents these things from being fulfilled any day. And I believe that what's happening right now in Israel is just the start. It's leading up to the greater things that are recorded for us in chapters 38 and 39 of the book of Ezekiel. Read those and find out what's in store for them. There's a battle coming forward, and it's going to be a very, very impossible situation for them. But guess what? I'll tell you a secret. God's on their side. And God will intervene. And He will do a miracle for them that will force them to realize that wasn't us. Even with their iron dome, with their arrow system, with their iron laser system that is being now introduced for the first time, even though the United States military is stationed in the Mediterranean Sea with all those warships, in the Red Sea with other battalions of forces ready for battle. There won't be any stopping the invasion that Ezekiel speaks of unless it's God that does it. And it will be. So they have a great deal to look forward to. We have a great deal to look forward to. But as far as I can see, the church isn't in the picture of all that is going to take place in the days ahead. That's perhaps a story that we'll look at the next time we get together. Until then, my friends, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. Pray for Benjamin Netanyahu. Pray for the people who are in harm's way, both in Gaza and in Israel and elsewhere. Pray for Sarah as she heads back to that terribly difficult place of uncertainty where she can minister to the hearts of those people who she comes into contact with and be a part of what the Spirit of God is doing there in reaching souls for Christ in these last hours. Pray for one another that we would stay steadfastly firm in our faith. Pray 
for this church, for this pastor. Pray in Jesus' name.